The following lecture was delivered at the 10th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Dove Greenberg will now present a lecture entitled, Accessing Your Well of Creativity. So in San Francisco, downtown San Francisco, there's a little kosher falafel place. It's called, it's called Yossi's Kosher Falafel. So one day, the tax inspector comes to Yossi. He says, Yossi, this is a kosher takeout? Yossi says, yes, it is. He says, okay, we're going through your books. We see you have a write-off for rent. That makes sense. You have a write-off for hummus and pita, falafel, that's all kosher. Makes sense. He says, but we see you have a tax write-off for five round-trip tickets to Tel Aviv from San Francisco. And then you have six round-trip tickets to Miami Beach. Tax write-off. How on earth are these tax write-offs? Your falafel kosher stand. So Yossi puts a big smile on his face. He says, you don't understand. We deliver... There was an elderly, wealthy Jewish woman, and she is trying to find parking in a mall. She's in her Mercedes, driving around. Five, ten minutes. Finally, she sees a parking space. Okay, she's pulling in slowly. She's elderly, pulling in slowly. This young teenager in a little Toyota Camry or something cuts her right off and glides right into the parking space. He walks out. He's walking to the mall. So she rolls down her window. She, she says, what kind of chutzpah is this? I was here. You saw me pulling in. My blinkers are on. You're schnook. You come in. You steal my place. What kind of behavior is this? So with a smile, he says, yeah, that's what you could do when you're young and quick. That's it. So she says, okay, fine. And he's walking to the mall. Suddenly he hears, like a major, he turns around, she took her Mercedes and just rammed right in his, his Toyota. The whole thing's in pieces. It's like, a, and he says, you Meshuggah woman, what did you do? And with a big smile, she says, that's what you could do when you're elderly and rich. <laughs> Who's clapping back there? All right. All right, so there's this rabbi. And a priest are good friends. The priest is busy in his confessional one day, and he gets an emergency text, a family, some kind of crisis. He doesn't want to leave his parishioners without guidance. They're coming. So he calls the rabbi. He says, Rabbi, you've got to do me a favor. I've got to leave, but I need somebody to... to you know, could you fill in for me for, for two hours in this confessional? Just give me a hand, my dear friend. So the rabbi says, look, I'd love to help you. I know nothing about confessionals. I don't know, I don't know how to do this. How am I supposed to? So the priest tells him, just come. You'll stay with me for a few minutes. You're a smart man. You'll learn how we do this. And then I'll leave and you'll man my, my, the station. So I'm just, okay, you know what, I'll do it for you this time. So the rabbi comes, standing with his uh, friend. A man walks in. He says, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. 
tells the priest. So the priest says, what did you do? He says, I committed adultery. So the priest says, how many times? The guy says, three. He says, three times? Okay, this is what you do. I want you to say two Hail Miriams and uh, $5 to the charity box over there and you'll be forgiven. He says, okay, thank you very much. He leaves. Two minutes later, another guy comes in. Another man walks in. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. What did you do? Committed adultery. How many times? Three times. Okay. Two Hail Miriams, five dollars in the charity box. And go, you're forgiven. So the rabbi looks at the priest and says, I got, I, I got this thing covered. You know, I figured out how this thing works. You can go. I, I have it under control. Two minutes later, a woman walks in. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. The rabbi says, uh, what did you do? Committed adultery. The rabbi says, how many times? She says, once. He says, go and do it two more times. There's a sale. Three for five dollars. <laughs> but on a serious note, a well, uh, beautiful story that sets our topic here in motion. And that is a story of Picasso, the great artist, there was a fellow who loved art, and he bought an original Picasso, with Picasso's signature on it. Some time passed, and he wanted to make sure this was an authentic piece, so he actually went to Picasso's studio. Picasso was painting, and he showed it to Picasso. He said, I just want to show you the painting. Is this genuine? Picasso looks at it. He says, I'm sorry to tell you, it's a fake. Okay, what could he do? So he was ripped off. Fine. Two years later, he makes another purchase of another original Picasso with this artist's signature. And he goes again to Picasso's studio and shows it to the master and says, is this the real thing? Picasso looks at it for a moment, looks, looks, he says, it's a fake. So this art collector turns to Picasso and says, you're a liar. It happens to be I came to the studio several times while you were painting this thing. I witnessed you paint it. Why are you telling me this is a fake? So Picasso looks at him, shrugs his shoulders, and says, the truth is, I often paint fakes. <laughs> and don't we all do that in life? In life, the question is, paint fakes, he said. He said, in life, don't we do that? In life, the question is, do we bring to our life, the potential and the capacities we have, the genuine power we have within us, do we bring that to expression on a daily basis? Are we the human being we want to be, the husband we want to be, the spouse we want to be, the child we want to be, the friend we want to be, the Jew, the person we want to be? Are we that person? Or if life is a kind of art, are we going through days not expressing the inner creativity we have and the capacities we have. And in a sense, we spend days painting fakes, like Picasso. That's that kind of expression. Now, in the Torah, there's a story that according to the Medrash, beautifully takes on this theme, deals with this theme, and offers a beautiful solution to it. And it's a story that we're all familiar with. And I'll repeat it in case um, 
He walked out of school that Sunday, you know. But here's the story in brief. Jacob, Yaakov, one of the founding fathers, the third of the Avot, the founding fathers of the Jewish people, is walking one hot day and he encounters a bunch of shepherds all sitting around on this very hot day with flock, with sheep, with herds, all sitting around a well, not drinking, not giving their animals water. Jacob sees them all around the well, and it's hot. And he says, I don't understand what's going on. It's a hot day. You guys need water. Your animals need water. Why don't you simply go to the well and take the water? So what do they tell him? They say, we can't. We can't go to the well. Why? Because on top of the well was a very large rock, a large stone. So they said, it's too heavy for us to lift. We need to wait another half hour, another 45 minutes, an hour, till many more shepherds come. And when we have a large amount of shepherds, we'll all together be able to lift the stone and we'll be able to drink. So Jacob says, really? Is that so? What does he do? He walks right up to the well, lifts the stone by himself off the well, and he says, now drink. Drink yourselves and give your animals to drink. And that's what they do. That's the story in the Torah. Biblical story. So what is the story telling us? The Medrash asks, what is it? Okay, Jacob, the Jew is strong. He, uh, he's able to lift heavier weight than others. Is that the message of the story? So the Medrash says something very beautiful. The Medrash says the well is not merely talking about a well and the stone is not a stone in Mesopotamia somewhere. That's not what the story is about. The story represents something much deeper. The well, the Medrash says, represents the well of creativity and power and energy that every individual has in their heart. Everybody has a very deep well, an endless well almost, of incredible forces, of power, of goodness, of holiness and resources. A well of creativity. But often that well is clogged. We're not tapping into it. Why? Because Evan Haggadol, there's a great stone. There's blockage on that well of creativity. There's blockage on that well that we have in our hearts. And so then the question becomes in the Medrash, what enabled Yaakov to do what the shepherds could not? If everybody has this great realm of creativity and power and capacity, kind of be the people we want to be. There is that well. So why is it that most people don't fully tap into it? Why is it in this story that Jacob was able to and the shepherds didn't? So the Medrash says the solution to this problem is right there in the story itself. When Jacob came to the shepherds and he asks them, why are you sitting around this great source of energy? Why don't you lift the stone? What do they respond? How do they respond? They tell him, we cannot lift the rock. We can't lift the stone. We can't do it. And because they said they couldn't do it, they weren't able to do it. But Jacob never uttered those words. He never says, I can't lift the stone. When he is told that there's a stone there and he sees there's a stone, he simply goes over it. He takes his, the power that he has and he lifts it. And the Medrash says that is the same mistake we often make. 
The problem is not that we don't have the resources or the capacity in our heart. The problem is we look at our life and we say, we can't. I can't be the person I want to be. I can't do the things I really want to be. Why? Because for whatever reason we decide we can't. And if we decide we can't, then we're unable to. It's that decision that causes the problem. Or three turtles. They went for a, have a coffee at a cafe. So the oldest turtle, the older brother, it's a rainy day. He tells the youngest turtle, he says, look, we're ordering coffee for all three. three. Go home and get the umbrella. It's going to rain very strongly soon. So the youngest turtle says, okay, I'll, I'll go get the umbrella on one condition. You don't drink my coffee. I'm going to leave. I'll come back. Don't drink my coffee. So the older turtle says, we got a deal. No problem. I won't drink your coffee. Because So the turtle goes. The two brothers, the two older turtles, they're waiting. Time passes. Lots of time passes. A day, two days, a week. Two years pass. Two years. The oldest turtle turns to the other brother. He says, look, he ain't returning. He's not coming back. Let's, I'm going to just drink his coffee. There's no problem. <laughs> and from behind the door, a little voice is heard. If you drink that coffee, I'm not going to go. <laughs> and so often we sit around and we don't tap into our resources. We're waiting. We're karatzing. We're this. We're waiting for that day. And the Medrash says, every day a person can really say, Nuchal, use those words of Yaakov and say, today I'm going to tap in to the spiritual capacity I have. There's a, a story, actually somebody mentioned it. Uh, it's, a, it's a famous story, but the details here really illustrate this theme. For close to a thousand years, really there were runners already in the times of the great marathons in ancient Greece, but for a for close to a thousand years, maybe it's dated from a bit later, people always said that it is impossible for a human being to run a mile in less than four minutes. It's not possible. It's impossible. Now, it's, it's not merely that people said it can't be done. People who analyze the structure of the human being, I actually once read a very interesting article about this, they analyzed the structure of a human being and the structures of a cheetah and other animals. They said the bone structure of a human being doesn't allow a person to break the four-minute mile. It's not possible. The lung capacity that gives oxygen to the muscles is not large enough like lar other animals to allow a person to break that. And so that's how it was for close to a thousand years. Everybody said it was impossible to break the four-minute mile and no one ever did. In 1954, a medical student, no one knew who he was, would, would, would run in races, Roger Bannister. It was a race, and he worked very hard. I, I think he actually needed money for the race, but he worked very hard. <laughs> he broke the, the world's record. Three minutes, 59 seconds, point four. You know, six seconds, uh, he broke the four-minute mile. Hey, it made headlines all across the world. Somebody broke the four-minute man the first time on record. Now, what's astonishing is not that he broke the record. The next year, less than the, 10 months later, there was another marathon. 37 runners broke the record. Some even broke Bannister's record. 37, 10 months later. The next year, 300 people broke that record. 300 a year later. So less than two years later, 
So they didn't invent new sneakers in those years and the human structure didn't change. And what changed was not capacity, but perception. It's the only thing that changed, the perception. And that is what the Medrash says. The Medrash says the reason why the shepherds didn't lift the stone was not because of the weight of the stone. It was because they said, like human beings said for a thousand years, it's not humanly possible. I can't be the person I want to be. I can't do, I can't express the creativity I want to. I can't. And if a person says they can't, they truly can't. But the moment a person says and really believes it's possible, I can do it. I can do it. Then it becomes very possible. So that's the first thing the Medrash offers is that a person needs to change their mindset, to believe that the energies we have, we actually could use. One of the landmark experiments in the 20th century that goes to the heart of this issue, very famous in psychology uh, and in leadership, it was a bestseller, a book called Learned Helplessness. And one of the landmark experiments they did was they took a group of scientists took, were experimenting with a dog, with, with dogs. So they built an interesting cage. Cage, they put the dog into the cage, and the cage had a fence dividing it into two halves. Then they took a kind of electric shock, and they would shock the dog when he was in one partition, in one half of his box. What would the dog do? He would jump over the fence, and the other fence was a safety zone. There were no electric shock. And that's what the dog always would do. So every time they would put a dog into this environment, shock the dog, the dog would jump. Okay, so far so good. Makes sense. Then they restrained the dog. They chained it. They put it on a leash so it was unable to jump the fence. If it would try, it would fail. And they would shock the dog. I mean, the shock actually was uncomfortable, but it wouldn't harm the dog. So that's what they would do. Then they would shock the dog, but after a while, this dog now restrained, realized that there's the shock and it can't leave its confined space. This is interesting. What would happen was on this dog, and then when they did this test with many, many dogs, after a while, the dog stopped trying to jump over the fence. The dog would, would, would bark a little bit and make some sounds, but after a while, the dog would not even attempt to jump the fence. That's what happened. Okay, that was the second stage. Now, the most remarkable part of the experiment is this. After they conditioned the dog, days and weeks of this experiment, what they would do is they would take off the leash and take off all the restraints from the dog. So now the dog was very quickly able to jump the fence. No pain, no problem. Guess what happened? The dog stopped jumping, all of them, no exception. Once the dog became conditioned to the fact that it cannot jump over the fence, conditioned based on past experiences. It had nothing to do with the experience of the moment or of the future. It had to do with the past. The dog stopped jumping. And they, that was called learned helplessness. The dog learned that it was helpless, even though today it wasn't. And then the dog was unable, didn't even think to jump. And so that the title of this bestseller book was actually called Learned Helplessness. And that was the main... Uh, one of the main experiments of the book, Seligman and a whole team of the therapists and psychologists actually said that this is the crisis that afflicts. They, they argue that this is one of the great problems of the 20th century, the 21st century, learned helplessness amongst people. They said human beings, they took this experiment and they did it with people, not with the cage and the shock, but with everything else. People look at their life 
and they say, based on what I did yesterday, based on my failure of yesterday, then today I can't be the person I want to be. I can't do it. But the, in fact, almost all of the time, it, what we're able to do today is incredible. But what holds us back is learned helplessness because we failed at a relationship, at an ambition, at a holy thing. We failed. It didn't work the way we wanted to. And we learned that we can't do it. We learned the words of those shepherds next to Jacob, we can't. And like the Medrash, Seligman and his team found the simplest solution to changing a behavior or changing this psychological profile of learned helplessness is simply want to get the dog to jump once. Once you get the dog to jump once, everything changes. He said the same happens with people. Once a person understands that in fact if they try harder again and they're successful, then everything starts to change. Their mindset begins to change and their capacities and their resources of creativity, of growth, are all there. In the early uh, 1900s, there was a woman who lived in New York, a Jewish woman. Her name was Henrietta Zold. She was in love with this guy for a long time, and she was convinced she was going to get married to him. That's what he led her to believe. At a certain point, she finds out that he's betrayed her, and he is dating a younger woman, and he's going to marry her. And she was devastated. Heart was broken. And she was an elderly woman. She decided that she knew she was not going to get married at that point. And she was depressed for uh, quite some time. Didn't even leave her apartment. She, had, she lived in Manhattan. She was completely devastated. One day she woke up and she said, I'm not going to let this defeat define me. I'm not going to stay in this apartment and say I can't do anything with my life. In fact, she said, I was in love and I felt a very strong love in my heart. I know I have a strong love, and now I feel that it's been ruined. My heart has been shattered. I'm going to be honest with myself. She didn't go to work for a while. She was just depressed. But she said, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life saying, I don't have this love, and I can't bring love into the world. No, I'm going to use this love for something. I could do something with it. And she created an organization. The organization she created is called Hadassah. That's how she founded Hadassah. And Hadassah had... Over, since it was created, till today, hundreds of thousands of Jewish women have been involved with Hadassah, the women's Jewish organization. It has done incredible work over the decades. Hadassah, in fact, saved tens of thousands of ch children during the Holocaust because of their efforts. A wonderful hospital in Israel, Hadassah Hospital. But it was all created because Henrietta Zald, instead of saying, I can't, I'm trapped in this experience and I've had a terrible disappointment in life and therefore I can't reach into my heart and do something with it. She said, no, Nuchal, I could take the love and warmth in my heart and use it for something incredible. I could bring love and blessing to thousands of people. Maybe she didn't realize it was thousands, but I could make an awesome difference. And she did. And what's incredible today is if you go to Israel, she is buried on Har Hazesim, Mount of Olives. And her tombstone reads Henrietta Zold, her birthday, the day she died. And then it says, Mother of Thousands. She never got married, but she had thousands of children. She had thousands of, more than thousands. 
So the capacity that a person has is enormous, literally to not only be a mother of one, but thousands, a father of thousands, to change, to make a difference. Even if we were hit with rocks of disappointment and depression and laziness, the rock on the well is a symbolic of many difficulties in life. It could be whatever the rock is in a person's life. Everybody has stones that weigh us down. That's, uh, in her case, in Henrietta's case, it was a, a broken heart and a betrayal. So that was a heavy stone. No one says it wasn't. But one morning she woke up and said, I can do this. I can move this stone. And she moved it and she changed the Jewish world. She became a mother of thousands. Nuchal, that perspective, like Bannister, like Yaakov, allows a person to dig into deep potential and change who they are and change their environment. There's a story of the Baal Shem Tov. This is a story of the Baal Shem Tov that kind of uh, expresses this very beautifully. He was once studying with his, the most elite group of students, Kabbalah and mystical thought. Hevra Kadisha, these were the elites, the elite disciples and scholars of the Baal Shem Tov, the first Hasidic master. And... It's raining outside, storming. And in those days, of course, the streets were not paved as they are today, but it was mud and dirt and grime. And a peasant, a Russian peasant, was riding with his horse, or two of his horses and his weirs and his wagon, and he got stuck in the mud and the horses started to sink and he would lose his inventory he had in the wagon and maybe his horses would die it was a bad situation and he tried to pull the horses free and he couldn't and it was raining and the mud was getting worse and he hears people studying he hears some men studying through the window this was the balshemtov with his group of disciples so he rushes over he knocks on the door he swings it open he says i need you guys to help come for one minute all of you guys you help me pull the horses out and everything will be perfect i can't do it alone i just need your help for a moment and they look at him and they tell him, look, we would love to help, but we're academics, we're scholars, we're Kabbalists. We don't know how to pull horses from mud. No, we can't do it. You know, sorry, we just can't do it. So the peasant hears the collective excuse of all the holy disciples, and he tells them in Ukrainian, he tells them the words, which means, these are the only words I know in Ukrainian, now you'll know them too. The Rebbe actually would often repeat this story. He said, Mojish shtoti chotish. Mojish means you can. Mojish you can. Shtoti chotish, you just don't want to. Don't tell me you can't. You're academics, you're scholars, you can't. Of course you can help. You can get up and help. Shtoti chotish, you just don't want to. Can, you can, but you're just unwilling to. Don't tell me you can't. And the Baltashemtov shut the, the book, whatever the book you were studying, said, that is the deepest spiritual and mystical lesson of the day. The greatest obstacle we often have in life is we say, Majish, we can't do it. Who am I? I'm not in the position. I don't have the capacity. I have these experiences. Stop with all of that, the Baal Shem Tov says. Majish, Tati Chachish. We just have to be able, be willing to try. You get up and say, I'm going to do it, and things happen. That's the Jacob experience by the well to say, Nucha, we can do it. Now, we could. Here, this medrash, okay, medrash, very nice. Jacob rolls the rock off the well. 
Very nice interpretation from the Medrash. Rar and Urbanister, Kol HaKavod, he ran quickly. Wonderful. And the, the Baal Shem Tov's disciples, it's all very well, but I know myself. I'm going to be honest with who I am. I'm like Picasso. Finished. I paint fakes. I'm, I, don't, uh, I don't do these things. It's a nice story from the Medrash, nice ideas. It's not going to affect who I am. I'm not, I'm not going to change. Does this, does this stuff really talk to me? Am I really able to tap into my own well of creativity, of energy? How do I do that? I want to share with you a powerful story that really talks to everybody. It's a beautiful story that was actually shared with, he's one of the great modern Orthodox rabbis in the world today. And he was here a few years ago. I think it was two or three years ago. He shared the story. It happened with him. Uh, his name is Dr. Rabbi Weinreb. Some of you may have heard the story. It's worth repeating. Very beautiful story. He is not, uh, so he's a rabbi today. He is not a Chabad uh, chassid. But he's a wonderful rabbi. So he was here. And he said this story. It was in the 70s. He just finished. He got his PhD in psychology. He was in Maryland. So he was working for most of the day as a therapist, psychologist. He also studied and he was a rabbi as well, but that wasn't his profession. He was a doctor. 1970, he had just got married a few years into his marriage. He said at that point in his life, he hit an early midlife crisis. That's what he said. It was an early midlife crisis. He was married. And he was doing, his, doing the therapy in the day and helping people. And then he was actually doing a Talmud class at night. But he started to feel anxiety and he started to become depressed. Didn't know why. He said, and then he started to have a whole series of doubts. He started to doubt his relationship to God, Jewishness, his marriage, his profession, everything. He said every choice he had made in life, he all started to doubt everything. So he had great questions of faith that for some reason he never had. He had a faith crisis, a relationship crisis, everything. Everything was in doubt and he was, he was feeling terrible. He didn't know what to do. He spoke to some of his friends, his teachers. It didn't help. So he was talking to a fellow. And this guy tells him, this was in the early 70s, the fellow tells him, look, why don't you, you live in Maryland, go to Brooklyn or call Brooklyn. There's the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a very wise man, but he's also very practical. He went to university, he'll be able to relate to you, he has a... Uh, speak to him about your issue, you can't lose. Weinreb says, I don't call Rebbe's, I don't know him, I'm not Chabad, I'm not a Chabad Chaz. He says, it doesn't make a difference. Most of the people, half the people that speak to him, they're not, you don't have to be a card-carrying Chabad member, go call, what do you have to lose? An hour of your time. He says, you know what, fine. So Weinreb got the, the number, he says. So they called 770. He says, the secretary picks up, Rabbi Chadikov picks up the line. He says, Verid Das, who's uh, speaking? Who's on the phone? So, now listen closely. Reinweb is a rabbi in Maryland. He doesn't want to say who it is. This is before, uh, you know, this phones would give the number and information. He wants to remain incognito. He's not interested in saying who he is. He wants to talk about his problem, but he doesn't want to say, uh, you know, who, who has this problem. So the, the secretary says, Verret, who's on the phone? Now he also hears, in the background, he hears the Rebbe's voice. He understood this was the Rebbe's voice because Weinreb also spoke Yiddish and Hebrew. He hears the Rebbe actually ask the question first. The phone rang and the Rebbe asked the secretary who's on the line, Veret. So he hears the secretary repeating that question, but he doesn't want to say his name. 
So he says, a wonderful Jewish response, Ayid von Maryland, the Jew from Maryland. Okay, that's still anonymous, right? The Jew from Maryland is on the phone. So the secretary says, okay, fine. A Jew from Maryland, what, what would you like to speak to the Rebbe about? Let's see how to proceed. So he says, I'm having a crisis, a faith crisis, a midlife crisis, a relationship, everything. I don't know where to turn. I've tried. I'm feeling terrible. Now, Weinreb said he realized what was going on. As he was talking, every 30 seconds, the secretary very succinctly was paraphrasing what he said out loud. Oh, so you're having a faith crisis. Oh, okay. So you're Because he realized that the secretary was trying to let the Rebbe know, fill in the Rebbe so the Rebbe can respond or whatever. But he realized that was going on. Okay. Then in the middle, when he finishes, and he says, so I want to maybe come and make an appointment with the Rebbe to speak to him, get his advice. That's in brief the issue. So he hears in the background, the Rebbe tell the secretary, who's Rabbi Chadagov, he says, Zogem, tell him, tell this fellow, that there's a Jew in Maryland who he should speak to. And his name is Weinreb. Zagim Zayid in Maryland, you should speak to his name is Weinreb. So Weinreb was, what? He, the only thing he knew for certain, you know, he had a midlife, he was a lot of doubts in his life, but one thing he knew is he did not give his name. That he knew. He knew he said, I'm a Jew from Maryland. So how on earth is the Rebbe saying I should talk to? So he figured, you know, it maybe it could be, he said, I, I was in stress and I wasn't, you know, maybe I heard something. It was a Yiddish word and in my mind I heard my name. You know, sometimes you're walking in the mall and you think, uh, oh, somebody called my name. I have a friend that when they go to a football game and there's 50,000 people there in the huddle, they think they're talking about him. But, uh, you know, sometimes that's, uh, but, uh, Sometimes you're walking, you hear, you think somebody says, says, maybe I heard something wrong, it wasn't wine, it was something else. So the secretary said, there's a Jew in Maryland, you should speak to the Rebbe, he says, and his name is Weinreb. So he didn't respond. Weinreb said, I didn't respond, I'm like, one second. So the secretary says, did you hear what the Rebbe said? So Weinreb, in a wonderful Jewish fashion, says, no, I didn't hear what the Rebbe said. He wanted to make sure, you know. So the secretary repeated it again. He said, the Rebbe said, that there's a Jew in Maryland, his name is Weinreb, you should have a chat with him, it will be helpful. So Weinreb said, okay, now I'm not delusional, this is, this is what... So he tells the secretary, he said, there's a problem. So the secretary said, what's the problem? He said, I'm Weinreb. So he said, the secretary was now confused. He hears like, ah, 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 ah. So he hears the secretary telling the Rebbe, er is Weinreb, this fellow is Weinreb. So this is the Rebbe in his classic fashion, says, oi, bazoi. If that's the case, oh, okay. If so, tell him, Zogem, tell him that Amol, that means at times in life, a person has to speak to oneself. It's time for Weinreb to speak to Weinreb. And Weinreb said the secretary was baffled. He was all confused. The secretary did not know what was going on. And Weinreb said he understood the message. He got it. And he hung up the phone. He understood. And he actually didn't go in to visit the Rebbe. He hung up. He didn't make... He said, the secretary was baffled. I got the message. And this is what he said. I'm repeating what he said. He said, I was... A, well, he didn't say he was talented. It's very clear. He's a very talented and wise. He's an author. He said, I was a person that... Uh, you know, Well-educated, but he's a very talented and gifted person. But this is what he did say. He said, my whole life I was plagued with doubts about my capacity, what I could do, how I could do. I was always, always a person that didn't have self-confidence. I didn't, never knew what to do. I had... At that moment when I was calling, it was a crisis. It turned into a crisis and I began to doubt everything. Every relationship, my Jewishness, everything. 
And what was I doing? I was reaching out to speak to some wise person or some holy person to get his advice. And what this rabbi, what the Rebbe was telling me was, you're trying to find solutions to your problems with consulting rabbis or Rebbes or whatever? Stop. You have a well of creativity in your own heart. You are gifted with capacity. Everybody was. Stop looking for validation or guidance or some kind of external help. Have a conversation with yourself. Sit down in a quiet moment and look out your own well in your heart. It's time for Weinreb to talk to Weinreb. It's time for Weinreb to believe in Weinreb. And he said, I did that. He says, I did that. I, I dedicated some time to think about my life. I didn't speak to anybody. He said, I just thought about it. And he said that, when he spoke here, it was decades later. He said that one-minute conversation was a changing point in his life. That phone call changed his life. That's it. He said from that time, whenever he faces uncertainty or he has questions he can't answer, he says in personal life or in his rabbinic life, he says, certainly I consult with people, but before I consult with anybody, first I study some Torah and pray, and then... I call wine rub. I sit and I think it over with myself. I think, I dig into my own heart. And he said, that has changed my life. And he has taught many rabbis because he taught for decades. He says, whenever I train rabbis, I always tell them this story. And I tell them this is something a rabbi needs to know. You have to be able to have those moments when you think about it yourself. Now, it's very interesting. Sometimes depression and a crisis and pain in life itself, when a person feels things are not going well, that itself is an expression of the deeper powers and energies we have. In other words, often if a person wakes up and feels in a bad mood or I'm not accessing all the potential I have, I'm not the person I want to be or could be, and we feel bad about it. So a person is depressed. Often in our society, what do you do? You go to a therapist and they start to diagnose you with uh, all wonderful things. In, in, in California they have certain therapy. If you're depressed, it's called underwater basket weaving therapy. I'm joking, they don't have it, but some of you believe me because they, they could have this. You have uh, all different kinds of uh, therapy. Oh, you're depressed and they start to... But I, I once read this article, very interesting. It gets to this point in a unexpected way. You have a food that they don't serve here. I'm not sure we could speak about it in a religious environment, a Jewish I'll tell you the food rhymes with mobster. <laughs> eh? Okay, I'll say lobster. Okay, there's a lobster. It's not, it's not in the tea room. A lobster. A lobster is a very interesting creature. An, a, a lobster the outside has a very hard shell, like a rock. It's a hard shell, an even. Inside is soft. It's soft. So how does a lobster grow? Which is an interesting kind of question. The, the rock doesn't move. So how does a lobster grow? The answer is that the lobster, when the inside of the lobster begins to grow, it starts to feel confined and stressed and pressure. And that signals to the lobster that it needs to shed the shell, the hard shell, that hard rock formation on its exterior. And it normally goes under some kind of protection, other 
large uh, stones or wood under the water, and it sheds its shell. It drops the harder exterior, and then it grows, and then it grows a new shell. That's what happens. Then a few months later, the inside of it begins to grow again. It feels pressure and stress, and it's a signal again to shed the shell, and it does that again. A lobster does this 10, 15, 20 times throughout its life, and that's how it grows. So very often in life, a person wakes up and they feel, why am I sad? Why am I depressed? Why am I happy? I feel stressed. So very often, know what that is? That is the neshama, the soul, the well that we have inside of us that has tremendous creativity, and it is bursting. It's filled with pressure. It says, I want to be a much larger person. I want to be a more spiritual person. I want to be the person I should be. But we're not expressing it. So that power inside of us that wants to grow, but is confined because of the actions that we do every day, begins to stress us and cause pressure and we feel unhappy, we feel depressed. But very often it's not about therapy or underwater basket weaving or changing a job or a career or a relationship or a new home or a new car. The, the crisis or the pain is actually not a symptom of an illness. It's actually a symptom of spiritual growth. It's a good thing. It means you have a neshama, a soul. There's a well with tremendous energy, and it wants to grow. It's feeling uh, confined. So it causes this kind of anxiety. And the solution is simply to say, Nuchal, we can, to allow it to express itself, to remove that rock of the uh, smaller habits or the smaller mindset or the resentment or the lack of new spiritual growth. And say, I'm going to become a larger person. I'm going to move that hard shell, that rock, that Evan Agada. And then I'm going to allow these powers to express themselves. And that itself leads to happiness. So very often in life, there is that kind of crisis. And the crisis itself is not an expression of stagnation. Actually, it is. It's an expression of stagnation and not of, I'm unhealthy. It's not a spiritual problem. It's actually a symptom of something positive. To remove that stone and there's growth. Viktor Frankl, the survivor of Auschwitz who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, one of the most influential books of the 20th century, according to the Library of Congress. There's a Jewish guy, Viktor Frankl. So he said something when he was, uh, he was a person that actually always learned and grew. He created a whole system called Man's Search for Meaning. Fascinating, very wise individual. But uh, when he was about 70-something years old, he was always looking for new activities and growth. He said, that's it. You know, I always wanted to fly. I'm going to become a pilot. Not, he's not going to fly an airline, but he's going to learn how to be a pilot. So he took pilot lessons. He, you know, he's all seven years old. He walks up and he started to, to, went to school to become a pilot. And he started to fly a little plane. So he actually told this to a large group. Thousands of university students in Europe came to some kind of conference. So he told them this story. You actually can Google the story. You can hear him tell the story. Parenthetically, that story I told you about Weinreb, you also can Google and you can hear him tell it uh, firsthand. But in any event, so Frankel has talking to thousands of students. He says, recently I decided I'm going to be a pilot and I started to take lessons. Everybody, you know, a bunch of teenagers are laughing. He's seven years old and he's talking about he's, he's becoming a pilot. So he says, today or yesterday I learned something very interesting. He said, pilots have something that's called crabbing. What does crabbing mean? He says, it means that at times when a pilot is coming to land, 
So normally you gotta set everything up so you know where on the runway it is you wanna land and you set up the systems so you land there. That's the normal thing that you need to do. He says, but sometimes you can have very strong crosswinds. Winds are coming and they're hitting up against the plane. And if you set the instruments in the normal fashion to land at a certain place because of those winds that are pushing you down, you actually will crash, you'll get killed because the winds will, are pushing, butting up against the plane and if you set it up normally, you're not going to survive. So it's called crabbing. What do the pilots do? They shift the navigation system and they overestimate, they overshoot where they really need to land. They don't land where they're supposed to. They pretend as if they need to land further. They overestimate where it is they need to land and then they come in for a landing. They don't land off the runway, they actually land where they're supposed to because they're crabbing, because they set up the system so it overshoots. That and the combination of the wind brings them to the proper place. But he says that is exactly what is true in life. He said if you want to get a good picture of what a human being is, you have to overestimate a human being. If you look at a human being for what they are, you're going to get it all wrong at a spouse, at a friend, or yourself. If you want to be realistic about who a person is, you have to crab, you have to overestimate. Why? He says because a person, if you look at them based, if you look at your spouse based on their, what they did the last years or yesterday or your friend, okay, that's one story. Not necessarily it's the best. So you say, okay, who are you? You are what you have been. Oh. But is a person what they are? Or a person is really has a capacity to be much greater than they have been. So he says if we look at a person for what they are, what they seem to be, that's, that estimation is going to be wrong, and then they won't live up to a greater distance, to a greater capacity. He says, but ironically, if we overestimate a person, we look at a person, we say, okay, this is who they are, now let me way overestimate. Let me look at them and say, you know, they are, have much greater potential, that's actually going to be accurate. That will be the accurate potential. So we, he argues, which certainly is true, is that we need to do that to ourselves, but we also could be that pilot for other people around us. That if we view people, in, in that sense, and we view them in the light of the capacity they could have that enables them actually to reach it. We actually do this kind of, you could say, kosher crabbing in Jewish prayer. When do we do something like it? In the prayer of Kedushah, one of the most sacred moments in prayer, we start to say the same words as the angels do in heaven. The angels sing kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. The angels in heaven say, holy, holy, holy is God. And what do we do on earth? What do we say? We say kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. But what is the tradition in synagogue when we say those words? Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. What do we do? We go like this. Kadosh, kadosh. What are we doing? We're, we're crabbing. We're saying we're human beings. We're earthly creatures. We're not angels. But we want to strive to be like angels in heaven. We want to strive for holiness. We want to strive for much higher. We're earthbound. But we know kadosh, 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 we are, have the capacity to go much more. If you want to be a mensch, you have to try to be an angel. But if you don't do kadosh, kadosh, if you don't even try to aim for heaven, then we won't even be a mensch. So we're, we'll, we will never be angels. We don't need to be. But we need to at least try to be angels. We need to have that overestimation to try to reach heaven. And then we get there. A... Adin Evan Yisrael Steinzaltz, one of the great Talmud scholars of our time. They're actually selling a lot of his 
Talmud now, they're redoing the, he was the first to translate the Talmud into English. They're redoing it beautifully now with illustrations. Half of it almost is done. They're selling it here. So he, it, besides being a great Jewish scholar and a social critic and a writer and a scientist, he uh, also was an activist. And he had, he still has, but he even had during uh, the earlier years in the 80s and before that, institutions to help Jews in Russia. Um, in terms of Torah and Jewish education. And he also has educational institutions in Israel. So he's an author and a writer and doing stuff in Russia. And he felt overburdened. He felt that his schedule had too many things that he was meant to do. And he felt that now he's going to start to be deficient in what he was meant to do. And he said he needed to cut back. Either he's going to stop writing, or he's going to close down the institutions in Russia, or he'll close down uh, the school he has in Israel. But it's impossible to do all he's doing. So he, Rabbi Steinzelt, said, you know what? I don't want to figure this out alone. I'm going to put a list of all the things that I do, and I'm going to send it to the Rebbe, and I'm going to ask, tell him what my situation is, and I'm going to allow him to choose what I should ask, what I should stop doing. And then it's not on my shoulders. So he wrote a letter to the Rebbe, he says, and uh, he wrote his whole schedule. He wasn't trying to boast, but he wrote everything he did. It needed to be accurate. And he said, right now, this is not healthy. We can't move forward this way. And I'm struggling with what project is the least important. Help me and guide me what I should cut. So he said, the Rebbe wrote him back an answer. He says, I read your letter. Now remember, this is Rabbi Steinzaltz. This is not somebody who's watching uh, Seinfeld when eating lots of donuts. This man barely sleeps and he's created, you know, any one of his... Occupations are impressive. For all of them together is baffling. So the Rebbe wrote him back. He says, I read your list. I see what you're asking. And it seems to me, it's very clear to me, based on what you're doing and the problem you have, the problem is that you're not doing enough. And therefore, I want to recommend to you that you should add a new activity. You need to take on a whole new project. He got the letter back. He's like, What? So he figured out what was going on. He said right away when he read the response, he realized what it was. This is a famous story written in the uh, Yiddish story. There was a, a Jew who once came to the rabbi complaining that he had two children and a very small house and one bedroom and a living room. Was very, it was like very cramped and life was a misery because there wasn't enough space for him and his wife and his children. It was just terrible. So he went to the rabbi, he says, Rabbi, what am I supposed to do? So the rabbi listens to the rabbi and said, okay, I tell you what to do. You have a goat? He says, yeah, bring the goat in. You know, you have the smelly goat in your back. Bring it into your house. He says, Rabbi, you're nuts. The rabbi says, you come for rabbinical advice. Bring the goat into your house. It's going to help you. Okay, he listened. He goes and he brings the goat in. A week later, he comes back to the rabbi. He says, you're insane. Right now, it's worse than it ever was. We have a goat running all over wreaking havoc. It's absolutely terrible. We can't live like this. So the rabbi says, okay, take the goat out. Come back to me in a week. So he goes home, takes the goat out of the house. Comes back a week later, the rabbi says, how is it? He says, ah, Machaya. Life, life is wonderful. So Steinsaltz figured the rabbi was doing this goat trick on him, right? He's gonna, he said, the problem was the rabbi never wrote him another letter. Oh, by the way, stop that new activity. He said, that never, letter never came. In fact, the rabbi wanted to know what was the new activity. And he said he actually did take on a new activity, and he says the Rebbe was correct. He has a very interesting analogy. He says, in, uh, in, uh, he says in, here on earth, everything weighs a certain amount. There's a certain physics that operates. 
he says, but you have small white stars and black holes that the physical matter, the pressure is so intense that physical mat matter implodes on itself and you can have a square millimeter that weighs tons because there's a whole different kind of reality. So he said, in, you have that kind of system in physics, but he said psychologically and spiritually that's true with every individual. We operate on one level, but if a person has the capacity with the spiritual power we have within us to redefine who we are and operate in a whole different level. It's not just a little bit different. He said, that, he said the Rebbe was trying to do that with me, trying to, to kind of, he didn't use the word break me, but make me realize that there's a much greater capacity in my heart to do those things. So we started with the story of Jacob and we'll conclude with the Jacob story and this is actually quite astonishing. We, Jacob's journey began with those verses in the Bible that I spoke of. He was walking, he was actually leaving his home on the way to meet his wife and his father-in-law. And he had that encounter with the shepherds and the rock on the well and he says, why don't you remove the rock? They tell him, loy nuchal, we can't. Okay, fast forward. 22 years later, he's married, he has children, the tribes of Israel. He's leaving Lavan's home and he's returning back to build the Jewish people and he's going back to Israel 22 years later. He's alone at night traveling with his family. What happens to him? He's attacked by a mysterious assailant, some demonic force. It's one of the mysteries in the Bible attack him. An angel, a mysterious angel attacks him and he battles with Jacob an entire night. Great scuffle. And at one point he gives Jacob an incredible blow and Jacob is hurt and he's limp. He dislocates his, one of his the thigh bone. And the assailant originally thought that Jacob's this uh, Jewish fellow and easy will beat him quickly. But they're struggling the entire night. The assailant realizes that he can't overcome Jacob even after Jacob is wounded. Jacob is fighting the entire night and the sun is about to rise and this angel has to go back to heaven. So he tells Jacob, you got to let me go. I got to go back to heaven. But the words before that, he turns to Jacob and the Bible narrates what this mysterious force says to himself. It says, and the angel swore, Vayar, and the angel saw, that he cannot overcome Jacob. The exact same two words that the shepherd used 20 years earlier. The angel uses those exact two words. The angel says, I'm fighting with Jacob and I realize I'm unable to overcome this Jew. Jacob was the man who in his life never said those words, I can't. He went through many difficulties, relationship issues, Jewish issues, challenges, persecutions. But Jacob always said, I'm going to be that father, the husband, the Jew that I need to be. And even though he had great difficulty and setbacks, he never said, I can't. He never said those words. He always persevered. And when the angel who represents a lot of the dark forces that tried to attack the Jewish people in history, ultimately the angel said, I realize this fellow is the man, I cannot overcome him. Because he himself never uses those words. And then what is extraordinary is, the angel says, because I realize I can't overcome you, please let me go. And what does Jacob say? Jacob says, I'm not letting you go till what? 
though you bless me. This is not a free evening. You attack me, and then you go, no, no, no. We need a blessing. Jacob understood this guy has a force, and if we can take, get a, negative, a blessing from this negative force, we're in good shape for himself, for the Jewish people. He says, I'm not letting you go till you, whatever you represent on earth or in heaven, you've got to bless the Jewish people. You bless me, I'll let you go. So the angel says... I'm going to bless you when he changes his name from Yaakov to Israel. We become Israel, Yisrael. Yisrael means you are somebody who has the power to overcome all forces on earth and higher forces. You're going to be a prince and a king. You have tremendous forces. And he blesses him. And he says, your name is not Jacob anymore. And listen to this. Your name is not Jacob anymore. Ki im Yisrael, you will be Israel. Jewish people, Israel. People of Israel, the land of Israel. Israel, why? Ki sarisa im elokim because you overcome all forces. And what's the last word? Vatuchal, and you can. That word again. Because you overcome all obstacles, you never surrender. Vatuchal, and you always say you can. Those are the last words. To be a Jew, to be a Jew thousands of years later is to be one that does not say I can't, and always says Vatuchal, I can. I can remove that rock that is bothering me in life, however legitimate it is, and I can overcome whatever obstacle I have today, what learned helplessness of the past is insignificant to today. All of Judaism, in a way, is a battle against learned helplessness, telling us that we are not the person we were yesterday, but the person we want to be tomorrow. Because loy nuchal is not part of our vocabulary. To be a Jew is to be a child of Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael, what every situation says, we can, we can run that mile and break the record. We can take a broken heart and turn it into a blessing for others. We could do all those things like Jacob could do. But the only thing we need to tell ourselves every day is, we can, we can. Thank you.